Hello, and welcome to the What Do We Talk About When We Talk About Mathematics panel here on Saturday at the Joint Mathematics Meetings. My name is Samuel Hansen. I am your host, moderator, whatever I'm supposed to call myself. I'm a podcaster, so I typically think of myself as a host or a producer. Uh, I think technically I'm a moderator here, but I'm recording this, so I'm going to consider myself a host. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I produce the show Relatively Prime, Stories in the Mathematical Domain, uh, which is a podcast which features stories from the mathematical domain. It's kind of in the subtitle. Uh, and I, I've, I've been podcasting now since 2009. Uh, it, those, those older ones are a little, <laughs> a little rough, both in uh, audio quality as well as like my personal quality. Uh, they were, you know, typical early podcasts had, uh, you know, I got some of my fellow grad students around a table and we made a bunch of off-color jokes and every once in a while quoted some things off Wikipedia about math. Uh, and then eventually I, I decided to go a little bit further and start interviewing people. Uh, and uh, none of that really matters that much today because today we're talking about actually talking about math. Uh, the things that we do as communicators, the things that we think about uh, as mathematical communicators. And this is something that has been very close to my heart because uh, I finished with a master's degree in math and left specifically because I like talking about math a lot more than I like doing it. Um, I know that puts me in a minority at this conference uh, and also in a minority uh, in the world where people would rather not talk about or do math. Um, but it, it's something that I happen to find uh, very fun. And I'm sure everyone who does math also happens to like talking about it, just not talking about it more than doing it. Uh, and so that's a little bit ab about me. Uh, we are waiting on one panelist, Colin Adams, will be here. He's finishing up a mini course and then he's going to run. So when he's a little bit sweaty, everyone, uh, you know, clap for him as he like runs down the, the middle of the room to come in and save the panel. Uh, but uh, what I asked uh, all of the panelists to do, except for Dana, who's a last minute fill-in, so I don't know if he managed to get, get this information, uh, was to come up uh, with a time that they kind of, uh, you know, a time when they weren't fully able to communicate something that they were really trying to do. Uh, if you, anyone was here sitting in on the last panel, you already heard this. But on that first show, Combinations and Permutations, we did an episode uh, about chaos, uh, except none of us had ever studied chaos. Uh, it's a podcast, so it's completely audio. Uh, and talking about chaos and trying to explain it turns out to be something you kind of need visuals for. Uh, most of the time, it's, it's very, very hard to talk about strange attractors. And you're like, well, it's like, so these things, they like, go around in a circle. They kind of come, like, try to this, what am, what am I, I'm going to make a Batman joke now because that's the only thing that I have. And uh, I'll arbitrarily mute some of my panelists because that was the character that I played on that show was a jerk. Um, which is kind of the character I play in real life, but less so. Uh, and so uh, now I'm going to uh, move on to our panelists who can tell them a little bit, uh, tell you a little bit about uh, what they do as far as uh, communicating math or, you know, what they do as far as math. Uh, and uh, then hopefully we'll have uh, some sort of a story uh, that will be, you know, uh, mildly humorous. Uh, that was part of the reason I chose this, uh, as well as very illustrative, because I'll, I'll get this out there. The reason I want to talk a little bit about failure uh, is that I think that failures are the things that teach us the most. Uh, every time that I failed to communicate something, that just means that uh, I learned that that wasn't a method that's going to work. Uh, and that then I will continue to try to go on. Every single time I've written a script for my podcast, I've had to rewrite the script. Uh, and so technically, I, I view those as failures because I don't view failure as a bad word. 
I view failure just as the thing that happens 99% of the time uh, that will eventually get you to that 1% of successes. Uh, so next up, Beth. Um, okay. So I'd just like to thank Samuel for his, uh, for bringing this panel together and um, inviting me to be here. It's really a topic that I care a lot about. Um, plus, I like Raymond Carver, so that's pretty cool that we're <laughs> riffing on Raymond Carver in our, in our theme here. Um, so I, just to tell you a little bit about me, I'm a number theorist. Um, I'm a professor at Villanova University. This is my day job. Um, but I really also love to talk about mathematics, and I sort of do it every chance I get. Um, and I also love to write about mathematics. Um, probably my main qualification for being here is just being willing to um, sort of make an idiot out of myself in front of rooms and on the air when I get a chance to. Um, so besides writing about math for my you know, college newspaper, um, I also, when I was um, in graduate school, I started a radio show that was mostly music, um, but it featured a call-in math quiz every week. Um, so the idea is I would come up with a puzzle. I was really excited to do this. So um, I would come up with a puzzle and share it on the air and then have people call in and win a Super Monday Buffet t-shirt. Um, and this was sort of the pinnacle of my life at the time. I was so excited to be able to do this with people. Um, my heroes were, as you may be able to guess, click and clack of car talk fame. Um, and I, wanted to, I wanted to be both click and clack in one. Um, so, so click clack? Yeah, you, basically, you want to be click -clack. I, I basically am trying to be click clack at this time. Um, so my first puzzle, um, I... Oh, just everyone? Colin Adams. <laughs> Welcome, Colin. Thank you. <laughs> so my first puzzle, I, was, I spent a lot of time preparing it, and I thought really a lot about how to explain it, and now I've completely forgotten it, so I can't tell you what it was. Um, but I spent a lot of time working up to it and thinking about exactly how to explain it really well. I read it on the air. I read out the um, phone number that people were supposed to call put on some music, waited, waited, and nothing, absolutely nothing. I was like, oh no, what's gonna happen? So I waited for 15 minutes um, during my set of music that I was playing, and nobody called, and I said, okay. Um, so I went back and I tried to re-explain the puzzle in a different way, and I was like, okay, now here's, here's the idea of what you're doing. And put the music on, you know, read the phone number, put the music on, again, waited and waited, nothing happened. Um, in the third round, my computer science professor called in. He was like my ringer in the audience. And he was like, oh, you know, Beth, I think what you really need to do is explain this aspect of the puzzle. And I was like, oh, okay. And so I went on again and did the puzzle all over again, explaining it a third way. And during the next 15 minutes, actually, you know, one of my friends called in and could answer the puzzle. Uh, so um, I was so devastated when no one tried to answer my puzzle the first two times. I was like, what am I doing wrong? Is no one listening? Am I just speaking into a vacuum here? Um, but I realized from this um, a couple of things. So first of all, I can't be both click and clack at once. Um, I think that th what makes click and clack magical and what ended up being magic for me in my show was a sense of dialogue, okay? So the fact that click and clack um, explain and ask questions live on air is what makes those puzzles something that people can really get their heads around, okay? Like, 
Um, so what I did from going forward there was I brought in my um, producer, my, the head of the radio station, to come in and, and be the, the clack to my click or whatever. Um, and he, we would go over the puzzles and he would ask questions whether he needed to um, know the answers or not, just wherever he thought that it would sort of fill in some more interesting information. And from then on, my uh, puzzles were magical, um, except for the ones that I screwed up because I didn't think about the answer hard enough ahead of time. <laughs> I, I mean, I, you, you learned something very useful there. I, mm -hmm. You learned something different than what I would have learned. I would have just learned always have a plant in the audience. <laughs> <laughs> that is also useful. <laughs> just just like, well, like you, te you text friend, like, I need you to call right now. Just <laughs> here's the answer. Just call, please. Yeah. So what I did is I sort of brought my plant into the studio with me. Right, yeah. so they could do it. They could be right there. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dana. Okay. Well, first of all, let me introduce myself. Um, since yeah, a little I'm, bit, little, yeah. Okay. Right, right into that microphone. There Am you go. Am I audible? Yeah. There you That's go. Good. Okay. Let me introduce myself because I actually wasn't scheduled to be on this panel, but Samuel needed a, 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 a pinch hitter, and so I, I agreed to and, do it. And thank you, thank you so yeah. much for doing so, it. Anyway, so my name is Dana McKenzie, and I'm a uh, my wife doesn't like me when I say this, but I'm a former mathematician. She says, you're still a mathematician. Uh, anyway, I now work as a freelance writer. I've been doing that for about 20 years. And um, I think, uh, so I think when I am on a panel with Samuel and, uh, and Beth, I feel a little bit like a, a dinosaur because uh, I still do the written kind of communication. Uh, and I think in this day and age, you know, there's so much with vlogs and so forth that it's, it's exciting. Um, and I'm sort of not, not into that generation, I'm afraid. So, but anyway, so I still, I, I'm a writer and uh, I write mostly for popular science type magazines uh, such as um, Discover and New Scientist, Science Magazine, um, and I've had one article in Scientific American, had a few in American Scientist. And I've also written a couple of books. And, um, and mathematicians might know me best for uh, the series, What's Happening in the Mathematical Sciences, which is put out by the AMS. So um, I've been doing, I've written the last four of those. So um, I might talk a little bit about that. Um, anyway, so uh, Samuel asked for this for an anecdote about a failure to communicate. And uh, so let me tell you about mine. Um, so as I said, I used to be a math professor and uh, around 20 years ago, I had sort of a uh, midlife crisis and decided that what I really wanted to do was be a writer. And um, I found out about a, a wonderful program at the University of California at Santa Cruz called the Science Communication Program which takes people with a science background, with a science degree, and teaches them journalism so that they can then become uh, you know, writers or, or radio producers or, or whatever. And um, so I, uh, I was so ecstatic when I learned about this program because um, uh, I just couldn't believe that something like that existed, that you could actually take courses and learn to be a, a journalist. So uh, it's a one-year program, and I went uh, on it in 1996 to seven. And um, so the story I wanted to tell is, is uh, of something that happened that year. Um, at this point, you know, so I was still very much, you know, I was learning journalism and I was still very much in a academic mathematical mindset. Um, and 
we took a semester of, of news writing where we learned how to write for newspapers. And then we got to a semester of, of magazine writing. And uh, one of the things that we covered in that semester is how to pitch an article. So when you're a, a writer, um, you normally get a, a you, you pitch a story to an editor or to a magazine first. And if they say, yes, we're interested, then you go ahead and write it. So it's totally different from academia where you write the article first and then send it to a publication. So anyway, so pitching is a very important skill. And um, so we were, one of our assignments was to write a pitch for a story that we'd like to write. And our you know, professor, who is actually a, a writer and editor himself, would critique it. So I was really excited. I was really jazzed about this because in the news semester, we weren't really able to do all that much science or math. Um, it was learning actually how to do news stories, crime and politics, stuff like that. But now we were really doing science. And so, uh, so I really wanted to do my first math story. And as a mathematician, my big interest was geometry. And so I thought, okay, hot diggity dog, I'll do a story about hyperbolic geometry, one of my favorite subjects. And so I wrote out this you know, query uh, for an article I would write about hyperbolic geometry and turned it into the professor. And I, I still remember him reading this thing and sort of these furrows on his eyebrows getting, <laughs> his eye, getting deeper and deeper, you know, and he's you know, rubbing his head, trying to understand, trying to make any sense of what I wrote because th there was nothing there that was English as far as he could tell. <laughs> so, um, so, and I learned a, a great lesson from that. Of course, you know, uh, the, the, uh, the pitch didn't fly and I ended up writing about something else. But um, what I learned was that, um, well, first of all, there's a huge language barrier between mathematicians and the rest of the world. And um, also, this was something I learned throughout this year that uh, when you're writing articles for the public, you want to think about telling stories. That's the way people learn and it's, it's, it's how you engage people. And if you want to write about mathematics, you embed it in a story. And um, so journalists actually don't usually talk about writing articles. They talk about writing stories. They say, I wrote a story about this today and so forth. And I think that the, the word is not accidental. Almost any article you'll see in the popular media is at heart a story. And that means it has people in it. And it means it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And so the principles that you use for telling a story are the principles you use for writing the article. And it may be that the article, I mean, ideally the article will involve some mathematics. It may just be about a mathematician. That's a great way to write an article. And I think that's probably a lot of what you're doing on your podcast. You know, you just find an interesting mathematician, get him to tell his story, and there's, there's your article or there's your podcast. But um, people... Ordinary people outside mathematics relate to people. You know, they won't relate to the mathematics unless you show them the person. So that to me was the big lesson. And so when I pitched this article on hyperbolic geometry, I was just thinking about hyperbolic geometry. You know, that's the way I describe it to a mathematician. But you know, for writing for the public, I had to think about what story do I want to tell. So to sort of give an ending to this story, because stories have beginnings, middles, and ends. <laughs> um, I finally did get to write my hyperbolic geometry article. It was years later, like about 16 years later, um, and there's actually a chapter for a book. Um, so I, I wrote a book that P Princeton University Press published in 2012. 
called The Universe in Zero Words, which is a history of 24 great equations. And the title is sort of a, a little bit of an in-joke because equations have no words in them. And so that's why it's the universe in zero words. But one of the chapters I wrote about, about hyperbolic geometry, and this time I learned my lesson. And so there's actually a great story behind hyperbolic geometry, which those of you who've taught it probably know that there were three people who found it independently and they were each fascinating people coming from completely different directions. So you had uh, Gauss, who was this titan of mathematics, the greatest mathematician of his time, of ever really. And he discovered it and he hit it because he didn't think people would, would be able to accept this idea of a different geometry from Euclidean. And then you have this guy, Lobachevsky, coming along. Uh, no, actually, no, I'm thinking more of Boyai, uh, Janusz Boyai, a Hungarian guy who's just a kid. He's, he's like, you know, Samuel's age. And, um, and, he, uh, and his father's a mathematician, and, and he wants to follow, follow in his father's footsteps. And he wants to work on this problem on Euclid's parallel postulate that you know, his father warned him against. He said, this will drive you crazy. And, and you know, but he, uh, he was dedicated to it, he, and he, he proved that this alternate geometry existed. And then his father wrote to Gauss and said, my son's discovered this wonderful thing. And Gauss said, oh, yeah, I already knew that. <laughs> so great story there. And so yeah, I tell that in my book. And you know, I, to me, that's, that, uh, I hope that that works with, for the readers. You know. um, hard to be sure, but at least I think it's better than, you know, than talking about angles summing to less than 180 degrees, which you know, it's interesting, but, but you know, the, the people is what really makes it. So I'll, I'll stop there. Um, any more things we yeah. can talk about, I'm sure. Thank you, Danny. Colin? Okay, uh, so, so uh, I'm Colin Adams. I teach at Williams College, uh, where I've been for a long time. And before I ever wanted to be a mathematician, I wanted to be a writer. Uh, and just give you a little bit of history. So I wanted to be a writer when I was a kid, um, but I ended up going to MIT as an undergraduate, and they're really not focused on writing, they're <laughs> focused on you know, other things. And, and when I was at MIT, I fell in love with mathematics, and so I kind of gave up on the writing, and I started doing the mathematics. And then I got to Williams College, and, I, and, and as a hobby, I started writing again, and I actually published my first story in the Williams Literary Review, which was really for undergraduates, but they let me publish something in there, and that was my first publication. And then I realized that I could, I could do writing about mathematics, but, but my take on writing about mathematics was humor in mathematics. And so I started doing sort of humorous math writing. And I, I took some of those articles to, to Ina Mete, who is one of the editors at the time, was one of the editors for Springer. She's now at AMS. And I said, could I publish a book out of these? And she said, a book? No, no, no. Why don't you do a column in the Mathematical Intelligence Service? And the Mathematical Intelligencer comes out four times a year. And so they gave me a column in the Mathematical Intelligencer. And so for over the last, you know, I don't know, it must be about 15 years now, uh, I have to come up with four stories a year for the Mathematical Intelligencer. And so I've been producing those stories. Um, I, I turn them into theater. And I, it's, I don't know if any of you got a chance to go to the theater we put on last night. So every, at the joint math meetings every night, every time we put on math theater, and it's usually based on those columns. Um, and then I, I've been writing a bunch of books. I have about nine books out. One of them is a comic book about not three called Why Not with an attached toy. Um, there's another one which is a compendium of those stories. There's a novel. My most recent one was a novel called Zombies and Calculus. I'm working on a second novel, not on zombies, on something else. And so it's fun to do those things. And then my wife was an actress, and I used to sit on her opening nights, and I'd see her doing her thing, and I'd, I'd just sit there and i think, okay, how could I use acting to do math, to, to present math? And I always love this idea of thinking about 
how do you get people to listen long enough to see the beauty of the mathematics involved? And so that was always kind of the goal is to think about unusual ways to do that. So I created this character, Mel Slugbait. And Mel Slugbait is a real estate agent from Texas and he wears a green plaid suit and has a Texas accent and a green plaid tie and, and cowboy boots. And this was when I did not have tenure, by the way. And so for the, the first time I ever did it, I did it at Williams for Colloquium at Williams. And I really was not sure if this would be the end of my career. You know, if they'd, they'd watch this and say, okay, we are not gonna give this guy tenure. Um, but luckily it went well. And so, and so it worked out fine and, and, and they liked it and it was fun to do. And then I started getting invitations and it turned out it really sort of scared me in my career when Mel Slugbait started getting more invitations to speak than I did, you know, and it sort of grew. And, and, and the trick here is I gotta tell you, this is the trick, this is a trick for life actually, is find a niche no one else is in, okay? And so for me, it, it turned out to be math humor. There was very little competition in math humor. My biggest competition was Ed Berger and he had the office next to mine. So it was like, you know, and so it was a good situation to be in. So I got a lot of invitations. So anyway, the story I'm gonna tell about my failure was one of those invitations. So I got an invitation to speak as Mel Slugbait and it was from a school in California. And so they flew me out. And so I flew out on a, on a Thursday, you know, and I had to get someone to teach my classes for me, you know, a six hour flight, got to California, put me up for the night. The next day comes and it's time for the talk. And it's a giant auditorium, huge auditorium. And I've got my, you know, silly suit on, you know, and I got all dressed already. And I come out and there are three people in the audience and this and they're all spread out over this <laughs> giant auditorium you know and the thing is if you're gonna act like an idiot you can get away with it if there's enough people in the audience that that there are people that are seed people who are laughing you know and then they help the other people laugh and the other people to sort of appreciate the joke but when there's three people in the room nobody laughs and then you feel like an idiot and then you act like an idiot. And so you just, and so the whole thing was just, you know, I'm going through the thing, but I'm like embarrassed to be doing it. And it was just a complete disaster. And then I had to spend another day there before my flight went back. And then so it was a huge amount of effort on my part. And it was just a complete disaster. And so, so I, I don't exactly know what the lesson is other than you sort of maybe should communicate with people to make sure that you're not gonna find yourself in that situation. Cause you don't really have control of, of, of the audience and how, what they're doing to get an audience there. And so, so that's kind of the risk you run. Um, but I strongly urge, I mean, the, the thing that I really enjoyed about doing this, I strongly urge do stuff, just do weird stuff, you know, get out there because it's just, it's hard for people to sit through traditional math lectures, especially undergraduates or high school students. And if you can kind of come up with fun, unusual things to do, they love it. And if the jokes are stupid, they don't care. They're just, it's a joke, you know, and they just, they're happy to have, have, have that sort of uh, opportunity to laugh, so. Well, uh, so I'll, I'll start off uh, with the question of, when you're it's starting to think about uh, communicating some topic, that no matter how you're gonna, if you're gonna do it on the stage, if you're gonna write about it, uh, it what is, what's sort of the typical uh, preparation that you start with? Like, how do you start uh, uh, working on communicating the topic before you're actually doing the communicating? Well, I guess I'll start. Um, you guys can jump in when you want to. So, um, yeah, so uh, I will, um, I usually get online, first of all, if I'm looking for ideas, you know, I, I look for, uh, well, I, I go to meetings like this. This gives me some ideas of things I might want to write about. Um, sometimes I'll find something online, uh, papers that people published or something like that. And um, usually because I'm writing articles, 
uh, about a specific person or a specific uh, paper, that'll kind of be the, the focus. And then I'll, I'll just try to read some background uh, on that subject so that I can ask semi-intelligent questions. And then I call the person who's done the, the work or the person I'm writing about and, and interview them. And that's really the, the biggest thing. And, and I think it's um, one of the um, things I didn't realize before I got into uh, into writing that mostly it's actually talking with people and uh, you know, every every story you'll, you'll be interviewing some and then usually I'll try to interview some other um, experts in the area to sort of get their take on what the person's done. Um, so, uh, and then there's sort of a certain magic moment when I feel as if I've talked with enough people and read enough and I kind of understand what the story is and um, and, and then I get, you know, then, I, then I'll start writing and sometimes I find out I didn't really understand it. <laughs> but um, anyway, so that's kind of my, my modus operandi. I would add a little bit to that. I mean, talking with people is huge for me. Yeah. And so um, with the puzzles that I used to do, with the writing that I would do, and um, currently one of the things I do that is most engaging with sort of a larger audience on math is uh, running a math circle um, for adult students in uh, Greaterford Prison. And I, my collaborator is, who does that with me is somewhere in the audience um, back there, uh, Katie Haymaker. Um, so when, we're when I was developing a puzzle or an article or one of our math circle activities um, for these guys, the first thing we do is just do some research and then we talk about it. We sit down and just like have a conversation about it and not with any goal or like figuring out exactly what the activity is necessarily, but just like, be like, oh, do you think this might be true? Oh, I don't know. Um, yeah, it would be fun if we could do something like this. Let's try it out on paper and just have a really open, free-form conversation um, and like sort of map out the landscape and understand what's going on without any goal of creating any object or like making an activity to even start with. And so that open sort of free-form conversation really um, creates whole new ideas for me from what I had after just reading on the internet or whatever I was doing to get ready for this activity. Um, and so I feel like reading about it a bunch and then just talking without any real goal with people about the things that I want to communicate um, has been incredibly helpful. Okay. Um, so, so I'll talk about two different, two, two different things. One is writing the stories that I write for the Mathematical Intelligencer. And, and for me, I'm always looking for stories because I've got to produce for a year. And it's like, you know, and, and I've been doing it long enough that I've used a lot of ideas up. So what I'm really saying is if anybody here has any ideas, <laughs> let me know. I got I got yeah. I don't have that long until the next one's due. Um, but, uh, and, and what's weird about that is when, when I finally come up with an idea and I have some idea and I really like that idea, um, some of the stories write themselves. It's like the minute I come up with that, I'm like, ah, oh, this is such a great idea. I'm like, Dur -dur -dur, and, and like within a day, I've got most of the story done, and then I'll take, you know, another couple of months to fine-tune it, but it's, it's just like, boom. And then there are the other ones where I will work on them for four or five years and put them aside, and it's not working, and they're sort of in the bin, and then, and then at some point, I'm realizing I'm getting near to a deadline, and I go back to the bin, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that one, and I sort of, and eventually it becomes a finished story, and it, so it can happen either way in, in cases like that. Um, so that's with the stories. Um, in terms of like the talks I give in character, it's kind of interesting because the first character that I created was this character, Mel Slugbait. 
And that one, I kind of knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to get across this idea of real estate in hyperbolic space. And, you know, he's a real estate agent selling real estate in hyperbolic space because hyperbolic space has these very different properties than Euclidean space does. In particular, there's a lot more space in hyperbolic space. In other words, real estate is a lot cheaper there, meaning that if you just take a disk of a certain radius, the amount of area in hyperbolic space for that disk is way more than the amount of area you would get in a disk of that radius in Euclidean space. And so real estate is really cheap. And I had you know, sort of known that. There was once a symposium I went to at, at University of California, Santa Barbara, where people were talking about just that there's more space. And I sort of thought, OK, this would be really a fun topic for um, doing a real estate agent. So I created the character for that. But then I kept using the character. I came up with other ideas. The character could be a travel agent selling bus tours of the universe and beyond. He could be a, a salesman for Shoppers Home Network selling not and not related products. You know, he could be an insurance agent. <laughs> and so the character sort of gave me ideas for um, other topics that I could do with the character. And so sometimes when I'm creating these things, it's the character that drives the idea. And other times it's sort of a topic. I'll come up with a topic I want to do and I'll say, oh, I, I need a character like the other character I created, Sir Randolph Bacon III, uh, who, who has a knot in his line on the sailboat in, in a regatta in, in Cambridge, Oxford regatta on the Thames. And, you know, and so that one was more driven by the topic itself and finding a character that fit with it. So it can work either way, as it turns out. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I can also answer this question, can I? Uh, so for me, a lot of the times, I, there's, there's two typical ways I'll, I'll prep uh, with the podcasts. Uh, one is if it's topic-based, I will do very much like Dana said, I, up until the point where he said he writes, I figured out that it's a lot easier to just skip that part and just record the interview instead and put that in the world. Um, but if it's, uh, if it's based around, say, a, uh, interviewing an interesting mathematician more and not about a specific thing that they did, but about more about their life, as I actually have with two of the three panelists up here already on Strongly Connected Components, uh, I will dig through pretty much everything they've done. Uh, and like go on their, uh, go onto their website and dig through the CV, find any interviews that they have ever done. One of the best ways I have found of finding good questions is to read other interviews. Uh, it is by far the best way to find good stories. You find that thing that the other interviewer did not dig into, like that toffed off, toffed, tossed off comment uh, where it's like, there's a story there. But that interviewer didn't see it because they were focused on the questions that they had already had prepared. And so quite often I will do that and try to find something that someone else didn't notice in their original interview and just go in through that direction. So a lot of times I spend a lot of times reading interviews, a ton of times listening to other audio interviews uh, to get a sense of, um, and since I'm doing podcasting, I have to have a sense of whether or not they're good at talking. Uh, so this, this is a sad thing. I have actually uh, gone, to, uh, gone to talks that people have given uh, and ended up not going through with an interview uh, for a couple of reasons. One, just because it turns out that the research wasn't what I thought it was, which is fine. Like that's, that's totally understandable. But also uh, because it turns out that the person is not, um, does not speak necessarily in a way that's going to present well. And that doesn't mean that they're not super intelligent, that they're not engaging, just that uh, you have to think a lot about your audience and how uh, the person, both how uh, the content, but as well as the person, like I don't want a person to come off badly uh, because they're just not necessarily naturally a verbally effusive person. Uh, and 
so I've, I've just been like, you know, I, I don't know if this is necessarily going to be a great fit. I don't want anything to come off. And then I've had to cancel interviews because of that. And it makes me feel slightly weird because I am, you know, sort of judging a certain thing. But as I said, it's, it's also about uh, trying to make sure that the audience is going to uh, get something out of it, which it does lead into the next thing I'd like to talk about, is, which is how deeply do you think about your audience? Like, I, for my podcast, like I have very, I have multiple different podcasts. I had combinations and permutations. That was just for, uh, I mean, that was essentially, I started that because when I was applying to grad school, there weren't any podcasts about math. Uh, by the time I was accepted, Peter Rowlett, uh, who's a frequent collaborator of mine, had started Travels in a Mathematical World, which featured interviews with mathematicians. But I was still interested in kind of that, the lived experience of, say, being a mathematical grad student. And that was something that you didn't find anywhere. Like, there wasn't any information about that. And uh, the problem is, when you identify a problem, you're, and no one else is going to fix it, you kind of have to do it yourself. Uh, so I started a podcast. And then I wanted to interview mathematicians. And that one, Strong Connect Components, was aimed at the mathematical community. And so I could talk technical details with people. Like, I didn't go super deep, because that's not going to be great audio. But I could talk talk details. And there's math maths, which is when I did with Peter Rowlett, which was mathematical news, uh, but is a little bit more educational bent. And so we would uh, talk a lot more about math education. I know way more about GCSEs and A-levels than anyone in the United States needs to know. Uh, and also, I accidentally say maths from time to time, and that it causes me no small amounts of psychological distress. And then I started Relatively Prime, and that one was aimed at a general audience. And so I had to think very deeply, like all these other ones had been aimed sort of at the mathematical community. And I had to really think about how I was going to present these stories. Uh, and like, oh, Desant, I'm, gonna, I'm probably going to have to write a lot more narration. Because while I'm talking to the mathematician, we're both literate in mathematics. So the way we're going to talk about it is not a way that a general audience is going to be able to grasp. And so I have to edit down and cut out those bits and say the things in different in different language myself. And I love having the researcher say, talk to the audience directly, because uh, I think that's, that's very important. But sometimes the way they say it just won't work. And so I have to come in and I have to explain it in um, you know, language that I think will be a lot better. Uh, and so like, those are the way I've thought about my audiences. And uh, how do you think about the audiences that are going to be um, you know, consuming the media, to use terrible words uh, <laughs> from the modern media world, uh, that you are making? I'll go first. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, definitely really critical to think about the audience in, in, in any context. So, so, for instance, in writing a book, you have to know who you're writing it for. Right. And you have to have thought very deeply about is, is this, you know, for high school students? Is it for college students? Is it for a general audience, you know, with an interest in math? Is it is it, you know, sort of more of a textbook type? Because is it more, you know, what 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 kind of a book are you trying to create and what is the audience for the book? And if you miss that and you sort of mix it up, it's going to be a disaster. So that's that's critical in a case like that. The same thing holds when you're giving a talk. If you're giving a talk and I'm, you know, doing some kind of, you know, like even a fun talk, something like that, is it a high school audience? Is it a college audience? Is it an MAA meeting audience? And, and you find out very quickly, as I did the hard way, that when you get it wrong, you know, there's a certain audience that loves you. You know, like when, when I do a Mel Slugbait at a MAA sectional meeting, typically that goes really well. It's a bunch of PhD mathematicians. They get all the jokes. 
Um, you know, everything goes really well. And then I do it for a different audience and they laugh at different jokes, you know, and they, they understand different things and they, and you have to tone it down and you have to sort of plan ahead for, you know, what, what works and what doesn't. And I give talks all the way from, from kindergarten up through, you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, graduate schools, and, and it's just really, really important to understand who your audience is, and if, if you get it wrong, it can be a disaster. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, audience is something that, that's constantly on my mind when I'm writing, and um, I've written for different audiences in, in my uh, career. I think that uh, usually I think of myself as writing for the general public, but that that's a rather broad category. Um, and um, I've moved gradually towards, whether by luck or good fortune, I don't know, but um, uh, writing for slightly more sophisticated audiences because um, a lot of the publications I write for are scientific um, publications about science for the general public, and they have a little bit more literate, science literate readership, math literate. And then I've been doing a fair amount of work you know, for AMS and for uh, other organizations like that. So the, the what's happening in the mathematical sciences, I have a really clear conception of who I'm writing for, that I'm writing for people who are um, like a college student who is maybe either a freshman or a sophomore, who's you know, good at math and interested in it, but wants to know what's, you know what's going on in math and what can I do in math, uh, or maybe a math major. Um, so that's definitely the level I'm aiming at. And so I could put a little bit more mathematics in those articles, way more than I would dare to in a uh, article for the general public. Um, so, yeah, so I, and I totally agree with what Colin said, that the success of an article really does depend on, on hitting the, uh, the, the right, get the, getting the material right for the audience. Um, I did want to say one little anecdote. I, I sort of prepared a second failure anecdote just in case I'd have time. And it relates to this audience issue. Um, and um, so a couple years after I got out of the Santa Cruz program, uh, I went to a workshop at MSRI um, in California that was for science, for mathematicians and journalists. And it was supposed to uh, build bridges across this, this divide between the mathematics community and, and the media. And... Uh, so they had, they invited some mathematicians to give presentations. And on the first day, the first lecture was by a very distinguished mathematician who I, I respect a lot. I'm not going to mention his name because I don't want to embarrass him. But so he was trying to give a talk on his area of math that the journalists would understand. And uh, from the very beginning, like you could tell that the journalists in the audience did not understand the word. Um, and so... Um, after it was over and there was this sort of deathly silence, uh, one of the journalists said, let's go back to the first slide, <laughs> you know. Um, and journalists, they're, they're, they are willing to, to ask embarrassing questions and stuff like that. So he goes back to the first slide and says, what does this mean? The word was matrix. So he'd used the word matrix. And to the average person, most people don't know what a matrix is, but if it's anything, it might be, there's a geological meaning, like, a, you know, you can have a gem in the matrix of materials. So um, most people, when they think matrix, they don't think an array of numbers. And so if you're going to write for the really general public, you probably should use words like an array of numbers instead of using matrix. Or at least if you want to use the word matrix, the first time you use it, say a matrix is an array of numbers. And you know, 
maybe say why, I mean, because array that somehow doesn't quite capture what I think of as a matrix. You know, I think I would talk maybe about trans transformations and how matrices can represent rotations and so forth. That's my ge ge um, geometric background talking. So, but anyway, I think people would understand what a rotation is. And so you say, okay, this is just a, a way we represent rotations. The other thing that is so funny on that first transparency, uh, one of the journalists said, raised his hand and said, well, at least I understand what that symbol means. And it was a pi. But the, the mathematician was using it to represent a product. <laughs> and so, so even the one thing the journalists thought they understood, they didn't understand. So it was a great example of the huge gap, the huge divide in just the terminology. And so you have to really think about that if you're talking with the public or if you're going to talk with a journalist, you know, one, somebody wants to interview you about your work. And I have to think about what will they really understand and, you know, words like matrices or symbols like pi, you know, they, they may be, mean something different to the general public than they do to you. Yeah, that, that's a great story, by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, so I think about my audience a lot. Um, depending on what I'm doing, it's a different audience. So um, when I'm trying to communicate with the people on the radio or people at the math circle or whether I'm writing a blog that's basically for the profession, I write a blog called PhD plus Epsilon. Um, I, have a, I have a really good idea of who my audience is in those cases. And like, it's a completely different thing depending on who it's for. Um, and so I agree that it's, that it's totally essential to think about that. Um, it's also a really tricky thing writing about math. I think that audience is a particular issue when you're trying to convey math to, to what you're thinking of as a general public. Um, there's a great essay about this by uh, David Foster Wallace. He was reviewing a couple books um, in two th the year 2000 um, for Science Magazine, I think. Um, and his article is called Rhetoric and the Math Melodrama. And it goes through a lot of things. But what he was reviewing were two novels that were trying to um, bring mathematics in a really serious way into like, what was also you know, a story. So in some ways, this is like, oh, they're, they're doing everything right. They're, they're telling a story. They're putting math in. You're getting math out of the story. It's wonderful. Um, but we, what he was examining was like, the ways that that can really fail. Um, and so in the end, he found one book that did it kind of well and another book that he thought was a total failure. Um, and one of the things that I took out of his essay was, if you're interested in math, then you probably know some math, okay? So like, if you, if you um, are thinking of sort of dumbing down or oversimplifying in some way, your math interested and probably somewhat math literate audience is going to um, catch on to that and be insulted very easily. And so what I look for when I'm reading books that are supposed to be for a general audience or articles that are for a general audience are tricks for how you can include real math that can really satisfy the people that really care and know about it, um, but at the same time really tell that same story. Like you don't want to just include a bunch of math gibberish to make things seem mathy necessarily. Um, and you don't want to, um, like for if you're trying to tell a large story, like get bogged down in over explaining every single thing that maybe um, the more literate math, math literate people in your audience won't even know. Um, but if you can somehow tell a, tell a great story and include the real math for those that are interested, but, but give something for people who don't even get the math. 
so that if people decide to quit thinking about the math in the middle, they still have something else to hold on to. I think that's a really valuable thing. Um, and I think that uh, Cedric Viani did this really well in his book, Birth of a Theorem. Like you can almost, if you want to include really hard math and you, don't, you really want to avoid condescending to someone, you can just include it and people will read it like they read the foreign language passages in a, like, in a Cormac McCarthy novel or something, right? They'll just see it and be like, cool math stuff, great. And it's real math, so the people that really know will care and be excited and be like, yeah, okay, I got it. Um, but those that don't can pass over it and still enjoy your great story. Um, so when you're writing for what you think of as a truly general audience, I think you need to try and find tricks because it's a very tricky balance for math in particular. This is, this is something I actually think that uh, some other uh, disciplines actually do a little bit better. Uh, in, in, you know, various physics or astronomy or chemistry or even biology stuff, uh, in some of the general audience, they will include things that most people don't know. But uh, one, one thing that I've, I've been thinking about a lot recently due to some issues I was having with an editor over a radio piece was, uh, guess what? Everyone has the entire sum of world knowledge in their pocket all the time. Uh, like, I mean, not, clearly not everyone, but a huge amount of people now just carry around, you know, smartphones. Uh, and so if you use a term or something that they don't know, they have the ability to look it up pretty quickly. Uh, and so I, I agree, you don't have to, you can include some things that people aren't going to understand unless they're already mathematically literate, as long as it's not like the entire crux of the story. But you can just mention this thing and then if they're interested, they can go look it up. If they're not interested and there's still another story involved, they will continue consuming the story like because that's what they're interested in. But maybe at the end, they're like, I like that story so much. There was that one thing I didn't understand. Maybe I will go look at them. That's a way to... Like, not only are they consuming that, then all of a sudden they're like, huh, maybe I do want to know about this because I was interested enough earlier. So you can maybe get that not math literate audience a little bit more math literate because they like this story enough that they're like, oh, now I want to go look up that other thing. And I can because, once again, I have the entire sum of world knowledge in my pocket. Can I add one, one thing? I, I was reminded of a story when Dana was telling his story about, about you know, your audience and knowing your audience. So this, this happened at a, at a state university in, in California. I won't say which one. And they're a very famous mathematician in the department, perhaps the most famous mathematician in that department. And at that school, they had a rotating talk that was given by each department, one a year, um, to a general audience. And so it became the math department's turn. And because this person was the most famous person in the department, it automatically fell to him. Nobody had any choice in the matter. And everyone was scared to death. You know, this, this person was not known for being able to give a general talk at all. But so they asked him, he said, oh, no problem. Don't worry, it'll be fine. I'll, I understand what you're looking for. Don't, don't worry. And so the day of the talk came and a big audience, a very general audience showed up. And his first line was, let mu be har measure, okay? And the audience is sort of aghast. He goes, for those of you unfamiliar with har measure, just think of it as Lebesgue measure. <laughs> I, I don't want to follow that. Um, so instead, I'm going to ask a question, make somebody else follow it. Uh, so when you're spending time with other mathematical communicators, because uh, we, we do that from time to time, uh, what are the things that come up most, most often? What are the things that you talk to other mathematical communicators about? 
Oh, I was just going to say, um, in the press room, we pretty much talk about bagels and yeah. whether there's bagels or not. Yeah, where the free food is, is yeah. always a very big thing because guess what? They don't pay press very well or at all sometimes. But th there's an entire section of questions I have here about money. I'm hoping someone has an idea to how to fund my podcast. Oh, <laughs> um, so I was just going to say that um, when I'm talking with other mathematical communicators, um, I'm often talking about sort of mechanics and like, okay, what are you going to do? This is cool. Um, and unfortunately, I very rarely get a chance to hear what's going on with them until I actually read their pieces or hear their podcast or something. It's all very much like chatty surface stuff. And I wish I'd talked more to mathematical communicators about how to communicate. I, I mean, I see some of that, but I like some of the mechanical things I sometimes are the most useful uh, things for them um, because we all, I mean, all of us up here uh, are... Uh, communicators in different mediums, essentially. And so to know uh, like some of the things mechanically about writing for a magazine, uh, as opposed to the actual thing that Dan is writing, but I never published an article in a magazine, but I know that I can talk to him about the sort of mechanics of that. I could talk to Colin about the mechanics of putting on a theater performance. I could talk to you about the uh, you know mechanics of actually doing a real radio show, which is not something I've ever done. Like I'm I'm pretty exclusively on the internet, so I, I think that those mechanical discussions can be very important. I think another discussion that happens in the press room is, is uh, actually just um, finding out what other people are doing because that inspires you. I mean, maybe I could do that too. You know, uh, well, or, or let's not step on each other's toes <laughs> on what we're covering. Yeah, or, you know, um, just, it just puts you in touch with what else is, is going on in the world and, and broadens your vision a little bit. Um, I, I love talking to people. So, so two things I love is one is talking to people who, who do the same sorts of things and, you know, asking them, like, if they're, if they're writing, who are you publishing with? Who are the people who might publish a book like this? When I was publishing The Zombies in Calculus, mm -hmm. I shopped it around at the, at the meetings, and, and the other publishers, like, we would never publish anything like this. Forget it. But have you talked to Princeton University Press? Talk to Vicki Kern at Princeton University Press. And it turned out Princeton University Press had published three different books on zombies and fill in the blank, you know? <laughs> they had one on international relations. Yeah. They had one on economics. And then she said... Done. You know, done deal. You know, we love zombie books. Yeah. So, so, and, and, and you find that out. And so, so just talking to a lot of different people and, and there is a set of people who write books for a general audience, you know, mathematics books for a general audience. And it's really useful to talk to them. The other thing is in terms of speaking, every time I go to a talk and I, if I see somebody give a good talk, I'm, I'm thinking, what made that a good talk? What did that person do? And then you try to absorb it. You try to think, how could I use that? You have to be careful. You cannot do exactly what someone else is is doing because it only might work for them. And so an example of that, we had a person, a faculty member at Williams many years ago, uh, long gone now, but a person, and we, one of our senior faculty visited their class and they said, and the person you know, acted, went through the class, and after the class, the senior faculty member went up and they were supposed to evaluate them and said, you know, I just gotta say, you are so funny in person and, and you get into the classroom and you become this professor and you're no longer funny. You, you take on this persona and you lose all that humor, which is what makes you warm and something that, we, that everybody in the department appreciates so much. So you should rethink that and maybe you could somehow incorporate your, your, your personality. And so, uh, and, and you visit the person twice. And so the senior faculty, she went back the next time. And the next time he started the class and he had a sock on his hand and he said, hello. I'm funny bunny, you know? And he taught the whole class with the sock on his hand doing the funny bunny. And at the end of the class, she just said, lose the sock. Okay? <laughs> so.
So, um, but, 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 but just paying attention. And it's very interesting because such different things work for different people. There's, there's one person I remember seeing and just such a good speaker. And I kept trying to pinpoint what it was. And I finally realized what it was, was he grins from ear to ear for the entire talk. And you, and, and, and I, you know, and it's a real grin. He just loving doing it so much. And that's all it was. You know, he was very clear. All those things were there, but it wasn't no humor, no anything. He's just so obviously enjoying himself up there as he did it. And I just, you know, so for a little while, I tried smiling the whole time. It didn't work for me at all. But, but for him, it worked so well. And so it's those little things. And you're just always thinking about that. Every time you go to a talk, think, okay, what makes this, why is this working? And, and how could I incorporate it? Okay, uh, so now, now I'm gonna start transitioning to the big elephant in the room for anything where we're talking about mathematical communication. Uh, why is the perception of mathematical communication what it is? Uh, so I, it, this, this, and I, we can also talk about whether or not we think this is getting better. Uh, but there's not necessarily a great perception of people who are spending their time doing mathematical communication. Uh, now. It's not a problem for me because I'm a podcaster. Well, actually, technically, I'm a barista. If you're ever in Madison, the Breeks in Fitchburg, I make a mean espresso. Um, but uh, like, it's not something that the mathematical community as a whole seems to uh, put much of an effort into. It's not something that they necessarily think is something should be heavily appreciated. I mean, uh, Francis Sue mentioned it yesterday during his talk. How about we actually start taking into account people who are writing articles for general audiences when we're thinking about tenure, when we're thinking about whether or not someone's doing their job well. And so uh, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about this, this issue of perception of mathematical communication as, as something that, whether uh, it, it's something that we should be putting more emphasis towards. I mean, clearly we all think that we should be putting more emphasis towards it. It's kind of uh, preaching to the choir a bit. Yeah, I'd like to to jump in, although I'm not really in the mathematics community anymore. I was, and, and um, but definitely leaving the mathematical community and becoming a, a communicator um, gave me a different impression of, of how mathematicians do things and how people in other subjects do things. And um, doesn't reflect too well on mathematicians. Um, so one thing I noticed, for example, was um, one way I like to get story ideas was sometimes to peruse the NSF database of recent grants. And every grant uh, abstract has, you know, is supposed to explain to a, to a sort of relatively general audience what that grant's supposed to be about. And the grants in any other subject were much more comprehensible than in mathematics. In math, you know, the people just did not know what they were doing, how to explain it to, uh, to a general public. And very often they were doing the same sort of thing that, that Colin was talking about. Oh, it's, okay, a simpler way of saying a Haar measure is a Lebesgue measure. And if you're a journalist or anybody reading, reading this grant summary, you can't, you can't tell what's going on. Um, so I think mathematicians would really do well to pay attention to what scientists and other subjects do um, you know, not just on their NSF grant applications, but uh, in general, as far as communicating to the public. Um, I think there's a greater awareness in other disciplines that you need to talk to the public, that the public is paying your bills, your salaries and stuff like that through the grants, and that you owe it to them to say what they're getting for their money. Um, 
I think mathematicians have a borderline irresponsible attitude towards that. Um, so other subjects do realize they need to communicate to the, sub to the public. One way that they, you can do this is through your university's press office. So when you publish a, a, a nice new paper, go to the press office and talk about it. You know, tell them, I'd like to do a news release on, on this paper that I wrote. How many mathematicians do this? Almost none. And the few who do it are, are really smart. And that's, they get a lot, of, a lot more media coverage because they're aware of this. Um, but I'd like to see a lot more mathematicians do it. And you know, when you talk with that, pub, that press officer, they will ask you the stupid questions. And that'll give you some idea of what kind of stupid questions other journalists might ask you. But you know, they'll also, you know, the press officer, I think, will be a lot more sympathetic to you because they're supposed to be. They're writing, you know, they're trying to build you up. But I think it would be a great experience, uh, you know, as to how you, how you talk to the public. And I think your press officer will give you some, some ideas that way. Um, so I'd really love to see mathematicians talk with their, their press departments more often. So my question is, do you think that that would change the way that um, the field values the contributions? Right. So um, in a way, I'm talking, yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm giving a, a possible solution. But uh, um, well, yeah, I, 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 I think that the, the, it has to start with individuals uh, doing this. And, and, um, and then hopefully if enough people do this uh, and talk about the fact that they're doing it, then they can communicate that to their peers and their peers so say, okay, well, maybe I'll give that a try. Maybe that's a good idea. Um, so yeah, I do not have a systematic solution for you know, how, how can you um, get mathematicians to value talking with the press office and doing news releases and stuff. But, but comparing with other subjects, you know, compare yourself to other subjects and, and you know, talk, that may mean actually talking with the chemists and the physicists and, and biologists. What do you do? You know, how do you get the story out about what you're doing? Yeah, and um, so uh, the way, I mean, as far as I understand the way, uh, press offices, a lot of times there'll be uh, press officers at the universities that work with specific departments. Mm -hmm. Now, since mathematics does not place many articles in mm -hmm. papers, yeah. there's not mathematical press officers yeah. in the United States. There are mathematical press officers in the UK uh, where there is, um, due to the Christmas lectures and RI and a few other things, there's a bit more of a culture, uh, in, uh, at least as far as I can tell, amongst the, the UK mathematical community of doing public communication. And because of that, they have people there whose job it is to do press officer work for the math department. And if we start having people here uh, requesting more you know, press officer work, we might actually get some mathematical press officers in the United States. And this is not exclusively me asking you to do that so I can get one of those shops. <laughs> not exclusively. Uh, but I, I do think that that would be something because if we did have more uh, press officers who are, who are designated exclusively to work there, then that's someone who can work directly with the people in the department beyond just getting stories placed, but also how, to, you know, they can be a very good uh, person to go to. And how can I do this public lecture? Uh, like, can you help me, you know, make sure that the language is such that the public is actually going to understand? And so the press officer can be useful beyond just uh, article placement. Um, so, uh, you know, in terms of this issue of, you know, should departments be giving credit for people who are trying to, to, to um, 
present mathematics in, to a general audience. Uh, you know, I guess, I guess I'm mixed on that in the sense that I guess I feel that, yes, you should get credit for that, but, but also you should be doing actual research. You know, that it shouldn't be exclusively that if you're going to come up for tenure. Now, I do think there's a, there's a spectrum of schools in the United States and, and some schools that are going to say, no, we're not going to give you any credit for that. I think there's quite a few schools who are going to say, assuming that you have done some real research and are doing some, you know, straightforward research, then this additional stuff that you're doing does count and that actually adds to your, your tenure file and, and, and it should count. But I mean, you know, ideally what you want is you want someone who is themselves an active mathematician talking about mathematics. And so you would like them to remain involved and then, and then you know, they can explain things. Some of these things are hard to explain. You know, if you work in cohomology theory, it's going to be tough to try to explain that to a general audience. I believe it can be done and I've seen Dana do amazing things, you know, and, and so I, I believe you can do it. But it's hard, and it's and and some people are going to struggle doing that more than you do. You know, you you happen to be really good at it, and so, um, you know. But uh, but it, I I also agree that this is really critical that more people do this, and especially if you've got tenure, do it. You know, get out there and do it, and 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 uh, you know, it's it's fun to do as well. So, yeah. um, this is this is. Oh, did you have? I just wanted to um, just add on to that a little bit because I mean I'm a person who's really trying to do mathematical research because I love my research very much and also really trying to communicate it's something I'm very excited about um, and I think there's a little bit of a, a odd perception which I would like to change and I think can change as part of natural or mathematical culture and that can change um, that if you're not spending all your time on research then you're somehow not very serious about your research and I like the idea of balancing doing communication and research but somehow, um, the perception that I've found that I find very distasteful is that if you are devoting, because it takes a lot of time to try and communicate something well, and the idea is that if you're devoting some of your time to doing that, you must not really be a very serious researcher. And I think that that is sort of a baseline perception that I would really like to take down, because I think that the two feed each other and are both valuable and important. Um, and so I would love to hear about ways to change people's minds about this. So. This is my question for the room and for the rest of the panel. Anyone, anyone have an answer? <laughs> I'm not sure anyone out there, too, if anyone out there has an answer, please let us know. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure that this is directly addressing what you're saying, but it's something that kind of came up in my mind as you were talking and Colin also, uh, which sort of actually something Colin was talking about, um, that some areas are easier to explain than others. And... Um, this may be extremely heretical, but I would actually like to suggest that, that areas that are easy to explain to the public would be good areas to work on. So uh, I think that uh, it might be worth thinking about um, uh, that, that um, mathematicians should not determine what they work on solely based on what math other mathematicians are interested in. They should actually think about society and they should think about ways they can contribute to society. And so, you know, perhaps you want to do this after you get tenure, as, as Colin was saying. But, but I think that um, if, if something is so impossible to convey that, you know, you can't possibly explain it to anybody outside mathematics, is that really something that's, that's, you know, worth doing? Probably it is. But maybe you should also consider doing some things that you can explain and that will be meaningful to the world. So, um, and like I said, I know it's extremely heretical, but I just like to throw that uh, idea out there. 
I mean, that certainly has influenced me in my career in, in the mathematics that I pursue. I do knot theory, mathematical theory of knots. And I love the fact that I can sit down next to somebody on a plane and they can say, what do you do? And I can you pull out my shoelace and I can talk about it and I can actually explain it. And if I were in cohomology theory, it would be a very short conversation. And part of the advantage of that is that I can also involve students in that work and, and you know, knot theory being a very visual thing and you can immediately start playing with knots and yet there's some really, really deep mathematics there. And I've spent a lot of time working with students over the years and it's because that's a subject that will draw them in. And I, you know, the other area that I work in is hyperbolic three manifolds, which is not like that. And I've done much more work with students on the knot theory side than on the hyperbolic three manifolds theory side and, and really love that aspect of knot theory. Uh, so a question I have, uh, not so much for you, Dana, sorry, uh, is how do you end up balancing this communication work with your other work? Like, what sort of uh, calculus are you using to determine, like, this is too much, this is too little, like, this is when I can, this is what I should be doing? I, I, get, I get itchy when I do too much of either. And so what happens to me is I'll, I'll, I'll like have a, a research project I'm working on and I'm really excited about it and I spend a huge amount of time working on that. And then, and then I finally sort of get to the end of that and I'm like, oh, I really want to do the other side. And then I'll start working on you know, a book or a column or something like that and I, I get a kick out of that. And the other thing is typically what happens is during the day I always am doing teaching and research and at night I, I like to come home to my hobby is, okay, I'm going to work on my my new book that I'm really excited about, and, and, and then I, I do that. And so one of the keys I found in my life that's really helped me is don't watch TV. <laughs> Just give it up, right? Because then, you know, and ideally, if you really love what you're doing, it's not hard to do. It's because I really look forward to having that time to work on these other, you know, the, the fun projects that I think of them as the fun I, I love research, too, but I think of fun projects are those projects that aren't research. And I like to go back and forth between them. And because they're different enough, it makes it easy for me to do that. It's not like I'm doing the same thing all the time, which if you're just working on research, that's all you're ever doing, and that can burn you out. But uh, this, this gives you a sort of a change, which is really fun. I don't think I've figured it out very well yet, honestly. <laughs> I'm nodding and like listening to a call and saying, okay. Yeah, I sort of sign up for things and then realize I'm doing too much of one or the other and then kind of go back and forth. Well, on it's it. a self-balancing system eventually. <laughs> uh, so as, as I mentioned before, I was going to bring this up. Um, what about money? Uh, like whenever you have to do anything, whether you are Dana, who's living off of this, me, who is trying to pay a fraction of my rent with this, uh, and then um, both of you who have, you know, full real, you know, jobs. Uh, it, what sort of, like, what is, I mean, I have a massive problem with money. I cannot find full funding for my podcast, which is something I've been trying very hard. I've used Kickstarter. I'm currently using Patreon. I, uh, turns out you can't really apply for grants as an individual uh, with no institutional backing, which is a completely separate problem that I think needs to be uh, covered. But like, how do you uh, sort of deal with the fact that you are spending your time doing this other thing? And if you're spending your time doing that, you're not necessarily doing the job, you know, that your university is paying you for. So how, are, how do you uh, deal with, with that sort of monetary issue? You pitch more, I'm right. assuming. Well, yeah, so, yeah, as a, as a full-time freelancer, money is something that, that I do have to worry about. Um, uh, but I think the, the biggest thing is to try to avoid letting it um, dominate <laughs> you know, my thoughts. Uh, one thing that I, I feel sad about is that I sometimes will avoid writing a, about a particular topic because I just don't think I can sell a story on it. And... Um, 
you know, so that's a little bit um, what to what you're talking about with the, the sometimes you have to cancel uh, on a person for your podcast because you just don't think they're going to yeah. you know, do well on the podcast. And, and so there's sometimes when, when I have an article that, that I'd really like to write and either uh, I don't think I can sell it or I even try to sell it and, and don't succeed. Um, and that's uh, one place where the business side, I, I, I try not to have the business side influence my writing, but nevertheless, it, it does in that way. Um, so uh, there are certain topics that are easier to write about and sell stories about. And so then those are the things I'll write about more. And so uh, as a math writer, I tend to like to write stories about number theory, partly because people know what numbers are. You know, and so uh, you, you already have a connection. And I like to write stories about geometry because you can have pictures, geometry slash topology. Not theory is great, you know. Um, so, um, so things that there's a, a visual element to. Uh, whereas uh, if I were doing category theory or K theory, I, I couldn't sell articles about that. And so I feel really guilty about that because uh, I'm sure there are lots of great category theorists out there doing cool things, but I'm sort of neglecting them. Um, so there's, I feel like I'm wandering away from your question, <laughs> but, but yeah, you know, the, the money does affect what I do in the sense that I need to be able to sell an article about it. One of the nice things about writing the What's Happening series is that, you know, my editors at AMS would like me to cover a broad range of topics and I can actually write about things there that I might not be able to write for a, a more general publication. Um, but at the same time, I also try to write about some fun things like in the last What's Happening, I wrote about sports analytics, for example, which, which is something that would easily be, I could write about for, for a general interest publication too. Um, sure. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, I, I think, you know, in, in my case, I'm in a great situation, you know, similar to Beth's where I have a job at a university and they pay me, you know, and they pay me to do stuff. And, and I have a really great situation. I have tenure. And so because I have tenure, I can, I can do whatever I want. Right. I mean, so, so I have a lot of freedom there and, you know, they wouldn't be happy if I did, you know, things other than what I'm supposed to do. But in fact, at least at Williams, I certainly am appreciated for the expository stuff that I do. I mean, they, they are really good about that. I think everybody appreciates it. And so, so that's not a problem. Now, of the books that I write, I don't, I, you know, you make very little money on a book. You spend, you know, you can spend a year, two years working on a book and you make, you make some money, but it's really relatively small. Now, there is an exception to that, which is I wrote a, I, I'm a co-author on a calculus book, and that's the one place where there is money. And so I have earned some money from that calculus book. But otherwise, uh, you know, it's, it's been made very clear to me by the publishers, do not expect to be buying a house on the Cape with the money you're <laughs> going to be getting from this book. And it's absolutely true. So you have to do it because you want to. For talks that I give, I lose money on every talk that I give. And the reason is because they'll pay for my travel. They give me $100 or $200 honorarium. And I'm a single parent with a child, and I pay $300 to the babysitter to stay with my child as I as I'm gone. So I lose money every time I give a talk, but I enjoy doing it. So I still do it. And, and, and luckily I have enough money that I can get away with that. I'm really excited. I wrote down money topics here and number theories right on top. I'm so excited <laughs> about that. Who knew? I had no idea um, that I was in a money topic. Um, yeah. I think that the fact that I have a job that, um, and an employer that seems to appreciate me for who I am um, at Villanova, I think that that's um, key because all the things that I do are mostly just done because I love to do them. Um, I get paid by the AMS for my blog, which is an excellent um, and awesome bonus. 
but I think that I, I would do it regardless. And so that sort of puts me in a different position. You're that AMS, you're paying too much. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I think a lot about whether I would be able to someday, you know, make the switch to doing it full time. And I just have no idea how to make a living doing anything but what I'm doing is how it turns out. And yeah. I think that this is a brave thing to do. And well, one thing that Colin said is very apropos about finding a niche. And so um, uh, for me, it actually helps to be a mathematician and to write about mathematics because uh, very few journalists have that knowledge or ability. Most journalists are scared of math, and that's one reason they went into journalism. But actually, in our modern society, there's a great need for journalists with an understanding of math and of data, too, uh, like statistics, uh, if we are willing to include statistics of math, which I, I do. Um, so, um, so actually, there's, there is an, maybe an opportunity there, a niche that, that, um, that adventurous um, mathematicians could fill. And um, so, uh, and I, I do think also just as a freelancer, you know, having a niche and knowing what my niche is has, has been a big help. It, it would be uh, hard to make a living otherwise, yes. Okay, uh, so we have a little bit of time. Do we have any questions from out in the audience? Okay, we got uh, three. We'll try to hit all of you. I will need you to speak into the microphone because I'm recording. Uh, fair warning, this might end up on a podcast. <laughs> so my question is, um, how do you gauge how, how good your story is going to be? So for example, and, and we've talked a little bit, Colleen, um, but you have a story, you have a novel on, on zombies and calculus and, and you're writing another one and we have talked about it. I won't spoil it for anyone. Um, but how do you go and say, that's going to be a good story. That's going to be successful. And the same for, for Dana and Beth. How do, you, do you have any way of saying, uh, yeah, I'm going to do this. This one is, is going to be a good one. You know, I, I mean, in my case, it's just something that just captures my fancy. And I, I, I'm always thinking about ideas. And I'm going, what about that idea, that idea, that idea? And I'm, I'm assessing them and thinking. And all of a sudden, I'll stumble across something. And I'm like, ah, I can't believe I never thought of this before. And then, boom, it just takes off. So especially, like, for a novel or something like that. Like, for instance, for Zombies and Calculus, what I came up with was the title. And I said, ah, a, there should be a book called <laughs> Zombies and Calculus. Two, this, this disjunction of these two things that are just so opposite, and you put them together, and, and the title was what drove the idea. And then I said, okay, now how do you do this? And then I started trying to think about how I would actually do that. And, and, and so just, but for me, it's got to be something, especially like a novel or a book, it's got to be something I'm really excited about. I don't want to find myself spending a year working on something that I'm not really excited about. So it's got to be something. And, and for me, it has to be something different. I, you know, I, I made a mistake of doing this calculus book and I, I don't regret it, but it was not fun. Okay. And that was one that I shouldn't have taken on because I prefer fun and I, I much prefer doing something that's really different. And then I get all excited about all the ideas. And then it's just like, you know, and, 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 and then I know that it's a good idea because I'm, I'm excited about it. Now, in the end, after you do the whole thing, maybe it doesn't turn out as well as you were expecting, but hopefully it does. And, and that's how I kind of see it is just when, when I get excited myself. I, I'd say pretty much the same thing, too. Um, one of the benefits of being a freelancer, which I didn't mention before, is that I do get to choose what I write on. Um, a lot of journalists are actually on the staff of a publication, and they have to write about what, you know, they're, to some extent, have to write about what they're told to. Now, if they have a beat, they may uh, actually be able to, to pick and choose uh, from their beat, too, but they may... Uh, you know, if their beat is, is, is cancer or AIDS or something like that, you know, they probably have to cover 
like the major stories and they may not necessarily have that much option, but they do. Whereas I'm really lucky, I'm a freelancer and I, I can pick and choose and do the things that I, I really like. Um, and so, you know, there may be maybe even a math story that's, that's important or something that doesn't ring my chimes and I don't have to do it. Um, so I'm, I'm really lucky that way. But so as Colin said, I, I think that even before I get started writing, I, I have a good feeling about a story. And um, uh, it, it doesn't happen too often that I'm in the middle of a story and then I realize this is just not going to be very good. No, that that'd be pretty depressing, but if I do start feeling that way, I'll I'll look for whatever, uh, whatever I can, whatever makes me feel good about it. You know, I'll highlight that part. So. Well, I think that when I'm working on something, I'm often incredibly surprised. So I guess the question that I would have to know how to answer first is, what does good mean, right? Because sometimes I create things and I think they're so good and I feel really good all the way through and when I'm done, I feel good about them and I think they're good, but nobody cares. <laughs> like when I'm writing this blog, I have this sort of interesting opportunity to see exactly how many people read anything that I might put out there. And the things that I am it's, the most- that's, That I will say absolutely the worst thing ever. I wish that I could not see my download <laughs> you numbers. hide your WordPress The staff. worst. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so blogs are um, really rough on your ego, actually, because you put out something that you love and no one cares. And then you write a piece that, <clears throat> I don't know, for you think is maybe a good idea, but it, it doesn't have any magic for you. And then people love that, and you get more clicks than you've ever had. Um, so, like, good is a, is a complicated word in some ways. Um, and I have no idea how I know <laughs> when something is good to other people, only when I get excited about it, I know. Um, so I'm not sure this is a question or, or a comment exactly, um, but you were talking about the differences in difficulty in explaining something like knot theory where you have a prop right there at your disposal versus like cohomology or something like that. Um, and I think that if you're engaged with something like cohomology that might be very hard to explain to the general public, you still have that very human part of yourself that's engaged with this thing. And you can talk about that, right? And so I'm wondering if like, maybe that's something we haven't quite touched on is like, not just the importance of communicating mathematical content to the general public, but like the importance of changing the perception of like what mathematics is and how we mathematicians engage with mathematics as a very like human topic. Yeah, I think that's really important. And, uh, and that gets to the issue that I was talking about, about every story is actually a story and there's a person in there. And so, um, so I try to, if I'm, if it's about, you know, if they're cohomology theorists, you know, I'll try to bring out whatever is, is human about them. And the first question I ask in most of my interviews is what got you interested in this subject? And I often find that's a great place to start. You know, they'll start telling the story and sometimes a really good story about, you know, what first got them interested in it. I mean, that is, uh, at least for me, I mean, with audio, the thing that I tend to do the most, like I'm always uh, interested in the human side of things. I mean, last night, the live podcast I did was all about mathematical origin stories. So literally just, why are you doing math? Uh, and uh, because uh, with audio, it's all very storytelling based. And the storytelling, the best way to do storytelling is to, you know, talk about the humanness of it. Like, because if you want people to relate to you, remind them that you're a human. There is, I gave a talk on mathematical storytelling at the University of Arkansas a while ago, and I literally said, remind people that mathematicians are humans. Like just the number one thing, this is a human thing that we are doing. And in order to get people to engage, remind them that mathematicians are not these weird robots that do this thing that you hate. 
they're human beings who love something in the same way that you love what you do. Uh, and I think that that's a, that's a very important thing. But we're going to jump back to the last question, so make sure that we can uh, get them all through. Thank you. And hopefully this is a useful question, because I bet that there's people not in this audience. We, we want to hear what you guys are saying, but there's probably people out here who could be you somewhere in this vast panoply of rooms. Um, so what's the next resource for those who might not have the technical training to be a podcaster or a blogger or whatever? Uh, right. Um, because yeah, like I, I gave some talks at a, a place um, somewhere a long time ago, and this woman who's their social media person said, why are you not vlogging? I said, what's a vlog? Yeah. Right. And, and so where do you find resources if you, as a mathematician, aren't trained to do this? And um, you know, like, how would you even start wanting to communicate to others? Because I think many of us really deeply feel that need to communicate why this is very valuable and not just to policy stakeholders, but to just people that we meet on the street. Uh, okay. Oh, well, I was just going to say that if you, if you can do math, you can do WordPress. Um, there are some blogging platforms out there that are incredibly straightforward and easy. And if you can find a quick tutorial, um, I know it's a little intimidating to start it for the first time. It's really very straightforward um, to create your own blog. Um, they try and make it as accessible as possible. So I feel like blogging is the most accessible entry point to communicating about mathematics. No one has to pay you. You don't have to pitch anything. It's really um, right there. Uh, as far as podcasting goes, transom.org. Uh, is an amazing resource. Uh, it was created by, uh, and he's the uh, guy who created, uh, runs Atlantic Public Media, uh, and it's going to bother me. I can't remember his name. But it's, it's an amazing resource about, like, you know, pretty cheap things that you can buy as well as techniques and editing, uh, it, you know, with uh, highlights of various different editing software and how to use it. It's, it's an amazingly useful resource. And also, literally, if you want your department, I will come out and give a workshop at your department on how to do both video and audio stuff. Uh, I'd be more than happy to do that. This has really just become me trying to pitch everyone to give me money, isn't it? Patreon.com slash RELPRIME. You can support the show. And I would just uh, emphasize again that your university press office is a terrific resource. So, um, and even if you don't necessarily have a story to pitch, you know, maybe you can just go and talk with them and remind them that the math department exists and, you know, maybe talk about what's going on in the department and, and just, you know, have a conversation and, and see what, what they suggest as far as getting in touch with, with, uh, with people. And then the other thing I might suggest is writing letters to the editor of newspapers, op-eds. Um, so that's a great way to um, get the math macro viewpoint out on things. And, um, and as someone with a degree and a position and so forth, your voice kind of counts for a little bit more uh, for an op-ed, you know, um, so give it a try. What's a newspaper? <laughs> oh, see, I'm, sorry, I'm speaking to the traditionally minded people here. Yeah, that's right. Uh, like I said, I'm a dinosaur. Um, in terms of publishing, like if you're interested in publishing a book, it's the joint math meetings. It's the exhibit hall. You just go from booth to booth. You talk to all the editors. You've still got three minutes. So if you run, you can get down there and you can talk to them. And that's how I, like every book I've published has been, that's how I got somebody to publish the book. If you have ideas, they're interested in hearing ideas. They're interested, they're, they're looking for manuscripts. So if you have interesting ideas, that's really the way to do it. Just go and, and you very quickly find out who are the ones interested in which topics. And it's a great, great resource, actually. Hey, uh, I want to thank you all for uh, coming here, listening to us talk about talking about talking about mathematics.
think I got that one right. Uh, and uh, how about we thank all of our panelists today? Uh, have a great last couple hours, and I hope everyone's planes actually take off, you know, tomorrow or the day after when you got rescheduled for. <laughs>